This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Support Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 133rd edition of the program. Now, as you can see, this is a little bit of a more unorthodox episode because we're not filming in our usual studio because we are moving to a new studio, and uh, that's currently under construction, so I'm just filming in front of a wall now. I'm going to work as hard as I possibly can to get the new studio up and running in time for the next episode, but I can't make any promises. But what I can tell you is that the content is not going to stop. If we have to film outside in a dumpster, we're still going to film. So um, this is going to be a shorter episode. We can't go into as many stories as I want to. Um, And we do have a lot of shout outs to get to for all the people who signed up. Um, on Patreon and PayPal to support us, but we're going to do that in the following episode, um, and we'll also be thanking our GoFundMe uh, backers who are contributing to the new studio as well. So on today's episode, the DCCC has been um, doing things that Republicans should be doing to progressives, attacking them. We have Democrats aligning with Republicans to deregulate Wall Street. I'll also talk about how a disgraced congressman is choosing perhaps to maybe run even though he announced that he would not be seeking re-election. We have Nancy Pelosi, who decided to endorse a Republican with a D in front of his name. And that's not all, because we'll also be talking about how Donald Trump's policies are slowly killing Americans. So those topics, and then some will be discussed in today's episode. Uh, We've got not that much time today, so let's go ahead and jump right in. I hope you guys enjoy the show, even if it's, it's a little bit chaotic and, you know, we're under construction. Um, let's do it anyways, because there's a lot of topics that aren't going to wait for our new studio to be constructed, so hopefully you guys will enjoy the episode. There's been an almost two-week-long strike in the state of West Virginia in all 55 counties, and the reason why the strike is going on, quite frankly, is because teachers are tired of being taken advantage of. And they're sick of it. And their strike is really substantial because more than 250,000 children weren't able to attend school because of the strike, which kind of lit a fire under the butts of legislators in the state. However, even when union leaders announced that teachers would return to work as an act of good faith after the governor announced a plan that would actually raise wages of teachers by 5% in order to accommodate increases to cost of living and an increase to monthly health insurance premiums, well, teachers still decided to remain on strike. And the reason why they decided to still remain on strike and not choose to go back to school as an act of good faith, since the governor did demonstrate that he did want to raise their wages, was because it looked as though they weren't actually going to get what was promised to them. And according to the New York Times, Senate President Mitch Carmichael has expressed deep skepticism about the plan, which was not on the agenda for consideration by the Senate Finance Committee as of Friday morning. Mr. Carmichael has suggested that any extra revenue should go toward shoring up the state's health insurance program rather than toward raises for teachers. So basically, to break down what happened... 
The governor had announced that he would sign a bill raising wages of teachers by 5%. The Republican-controlled House passed that bill overwhelmingly, but when it got to the Senate, this one asshole decided, you know what, I don't really care about teachers, so... We're not going to pass this bill. Now, what did the teachers in West Virginia do as a result? Well, they raised hell. They continued the strike. They protested in front of the state's capital every single day and even occupied the state's capital at one point. And as Brandy Bochna Tuck writes in an op-ed for PBS NewsHour, you simply cannot understand the intensity of a labor strike until you actually live through it. Since day one, hundreds of teachers stand outside the house doors, chanting continuously for hours. I find it to be one of the most compelling moments of my life. The building is filled with this eerie roar of educators fighting for a voice united. We are in this position because education is not a priority to our government. There are currently over 700 teaching vacancies in West Virginia. Connect that to the fact that our salaries rank 48th in the nation. Workers are on strike not only over pay raises, but health care benefits as well. The state-controlled Public Employees Insurance Agency, which regulates health care premiums, is at the root of the problem. So really, there's a lot going on. They're not being paid enough. Their health care insurance premiums are increasing. And they're just standing up and they're doing what needed to be done. Now, This strike would have already ended had the Senate and Carmichael in particular actually passed the bill that the governor promised the legislature would pass. But since it didn't, they're saying, give us what you promised us or we're going to remain on strike. Now, finally, as of today, Governor James Justice actually did sign a bill into law that gave teachers a raise by 5%. And as far as we know, since they now are getting what they were promised, which again, 5% raise, that's that's not a lot. That's not. But they're getting it finally, and as a result of them winning, the strike is presumably now over. Now, here's what's different this time. Quote, unlike a previous proposed raise that was backed by Mr. Justice and the State House of Representatives, the deal reached on Tuesday had the support of Mitch Carmichael, the president of the more conservative state Senate. Mr. Carmichael said the deal would probably lead to painful cuts in other parts of the state budget. Another Republican senator, Craig Blair, said in a conference committee that Medicaid would be among the areas cut. So this is what drives me nuts. So finally, when he reluctantly gets on board with this bill and chooses to raise the wages of teachers in West Virginia, which he should have done to begin with, now they're saying, well, you know, since we can't screw you over this way, we're going to screw over residents of West Virginia in another way. First and foremost, it's not just teachers that were affected. If you don't take care of teachers, that harms students and everyone else in the state of West Virginia. So this wasn't just about teachers in West Virginia, even though they were the ones on strike. Teachers are important for the future of our country. We need them. So teachers are important, but since they no longer can screw over teachers, they're going to try to do what they can to screw over other citizens in the state of West Virginia. And... If I were in West Virginia, I would be protesting cuts to Medicaid now. Because if you're trying to tell me that they just, they can't possibly not cut a social safety net program, 
I call bullshit. We know their priorities are probably ass backwards. Now, there's another component to this story that really got under my skin. And yes, I'm going to acknowledge the irony because I haven't talked about this issue because I've been in the process of setting up the new studio for the show. So I haven't been recording. We've just been looping the older content that we had uh, that was pre-recorded. But mainstream media who runs news 24-7, I mean... They were virtually silent. As Fair explains, MSNBC's big names completely ignore West Virginia teachers' strike. This strike was monumental. Teachers in all 55 districts in the state of West Virginia were on strike for nearly two weeks, and the three biggest so-called liberal hosts on mainstream television were silent? The only way I think you can get them to cover this is if you said that there was some type of Russian influence. Otherwise, they don't give a damn about this because this West Virginia strike, it's not good for ratings. It's not. People probably are ambivalent about it. Most people probably don't even know about it, but this is important. I mean, this is organized labor coming together to fight for a cause, and they won. I mean, this is something that can be emulated in other states. If teachers are getting screwed, if anyone in any industry is getting screwed, they could replicate this strategy that was used by teachers in West Virginia and potentially be successful in their state. So it's important, especially if you're a so-called liberal like Rachel Maddow, Chris Hayes, you should care about this. But they were silent. Now, there were a couple of, you know, quick mentions here and there on um, Velshi and Rule, I think. I'm probably butchering their names, but, you know, on MSNBC. But, I mean, this was talked about quite a bit in print outlets like New York Times, even CNN. But MSNBC, silence. Unbelievable. But getting back to the strike, let me just say that to every single teacher who was protesting, who was on strike every single day, that strike made me feel so optimistic and hopeful because at a time when citizens in this country are getting screwed over in multiple ways, I mean, we're getting our taxes increased as a result of tax cuts going to the wealthy. Uh, we're losing healthcare subsidies. I mean, we're just getting screwed over. So to see people come together in such a significant fashion and demand justice, it made me feel so hopeful and optimistic. So I, I couldn't wait to talk about this and get back because this this is something that I think everyone should care about. This is important. This is history in the making right here. And what I hope is that we don't see this story end with West Virginia. Hopefully West Virginia and workers there, teachers there specifically, hopefully they catalyze a nationwide movement. So teachers across the country and any other worker in other industries being taken advantage of stand up and fight back because they can win this way. So this story to me was incredibly inspirational. I just wish that the mainstream media would have been more diligent or just covered it at all. (laughs) Especially the three hosts who bring in the most eyeballs to the television screen. It's insane to me how they don't care about this. I don't understand that. So a few months ago, we learned that the DCCC, or the DTRIP as the cool kids call it, they are trying to shield establishment Democrats and corporatist Democrats, quite frankly, by basically requiring that all candidates who are running in the Democratic primary adhere to a strict set of rules. So, for example, in a memo obtained by TYT's Michael Tracy a few months ago, the memo states that campaigns must agree to, quote, not to engage in tactics that do harm to our chances of winning a general election. And also, candidates must hold a unity event with their primary opponents following a primary. So in the case of Paula Jean Swearingen versus Joe Manchin, for example, 
she's not supposed to point out that he's a corporatist because that would be an attack. And after the primary is over, she's supposed to hold hands with him and sing Kumbaya. That's what the DNC was expecting and requiring of candidates who are running in the Democratic Party. But now, just a few months later, we're quickly learning that the DCCC is not able to follow their own rules that they laid out for candidates. And over the last couple of weeks, they've proven this because they decided to publicly attack a progressive named Laura Moser, who is running to represent Texas's 7th Congressional District. So they not only attacked her as a DC insider simply because her husband was a photographer for Obama, but they're also saying that she's not qualified to run in the state of Texas since she only recently moved back there. And aside from these smears, they even made opposition research against her public, which prompted her to pen this article in Medium asking why the DCCC is attacking her if she's running for Congress as a Democrat. So this is what the DCCC is doing. They mandate that Candidates do not attack their primary opponent because that could harm them in the general, but here they are attacking a progressive. And they're not just trying to smear her, they're releasing opposition research that they've done on her. They're making it public so that we have Laura Moser, who's currently in a runoff. If she does become the winner in that primary, the Republican opponent who's running against her can use that opposition research that they made public. So if you are worried about hurting Democrats in the general, you couldn't possibly do anything more harmful than what they did to Laura Moser. So they're shameless. I mean, the DNC, the DCCC, these are organizations that's supposed to elect Democrats. The the DTRIB is meant to elect Democrats to the House, but they're making that impossible because if you really want to take back the House, you need progressives to win Democratic primaries because We're not going to be excited to come out and vote for corporate Democrats and neoliberal Democrats. You need to galvanize your base and excite them. Give them a reason to vote. But instead, they're trying to take that reason to vote away. They're trying to shut out progressives. They're trying to attack progressives. And quite frankly, it's sickening. And the smears that they do against progressives is just the tip of the iceberg. Because what they do when it comes to policy is also morally reprehensible. Because recently, they actually tried to dissuade House Democrats from supporting single-payer. They've also advised candidates running for Congress to not, quote, politicize mass shootings by talking about gun control. And of course, as I just talked about, they're now publicly attacking grassroots progressives, which leads me to believe that the DCCC chairman, Ben Ray Luan, is more problematic than Tom Perez. He is. He might be as bad as Debbie Wasserman Schultz, because Debbie Wasserman Schultz, I mean, even though we knew what she was doing behind the scenes, he's doing it right out in the open. So I don't, I don't know which is worse, but Ben Ray Luan, this is all happening under his watch, which is why grassroots organizations like Our Revolution and Justice Democrats have called on him and called on the D-Trip not only to stop attacking progressives, but to apologize for the despicable behavior that this organization has exhibited over the course of the last couple of months. Now, Bernie Sanders, someone who is typically silent on the Democratic Party establishment's shenanigans, I mean, he indirectly or passive-aggressively denounces the DNC's attempt to rig the primary against him, he actually spoke out against what the D-Trip is doing. That's how bad this situation is. That's how brazen their attack against progressives is. It got Bernie Sanders to speak out. So the Hill reports Senator Bernie Sanders said on Wednesday that the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee's attacks on a progressive House candidate in Texas were, quote, appalling and unacceptable. What these organizations should not be doing is doing negative attacks on Democratic candidates, Sanders told the Associated Press in an interview. 
that just continues the process of debasing the democratic system in this country and is why so many people are disgusted with politics. Yeah, you don't say. So I'm glad that Bernie Sanders actually decided to speak out because, I mean, what they did to Lower Moser, this, I don't want to say it's unprecedented, but it's certainly, it's something that you'd think they would be aware of because we just learned that the DNC rigged the primary a couple of years ago and here they are trying to attack progressives and push back against the progressive wave so you would think that you know they would be hypersensitive to anything that makes it seem as though they're trying to disadvantage progressives but they don't give a fuck about the optics at all they couldn't care less so I'm glad that Bernie Sanders spoke out because with Bernie Sanders Speaking out, I mean, this draws attention to this particular issue. So the D-Trip is just a disgusting organization. I don't know why it exists. They're supposed to help get Democrats elected, in theory, but are they really doing that? If they're pushing back against populists who have a better chance at beating Republicans? I don't think so. So, yeah, it's time for Ben Ray Luan to resign. I mean, I don't know if anyone can fix this disgusting turd of an organization, but certainly... There's got to be someone better because this is this is grotesque. So there's a new bipartisan bill making its way through Congress that aims to deregulate the same big banks that crashed the economy in 2008. Now, by reducing regulations, making these big financial institutions exempt from strict regulations that would prevent them from crashing the economy, this not only increases the likelihood that they'll crash the economy again, but require another taxpayer-funded bailout. Now, I told you it's bipartisan, so you might not necessarily think that a bill that aims to deregulate Wall Street in a brazen way would have so much bipartisan support. So if there's bipartisan support, then exactly how many Democrats are on board? I mean, really, it can't be more than one or two, right? Actually, no. 17 Democrats in the Senate are teaming up with Republicans to do something that is so harmful. Again, it's going to lead to another crash of the economy. So according to John Keeley of Common Dreams, Senator Angus King of Maine and 16 Democrats joined with 50 Republicans in the U.S. Senate to advance a bill that critics say is just another handout for Wall Street banks, one that also sets the stage for the next major financial meltdown. With a vote of 67 to 32, including the 17 Democrats who voted yes, a motion to proceed received enough support to send the Bank Lobbyist Act, technically the Economic Growth Regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection, or S-2155, to the floor for debate, possible amendments, and then a final vote later this week or next. So what's in this bill specifically? We know that it deregulates Wall Street, but what exactly is it doing? Well, Jake Johnson of Common Dreams reports, a major feature of the bill is exempting about two dozen financial companies with assets between $50 billion and $250 billion from the highest levels of regulatory scrutiny from the Federal Reserve, notes the Washington Post's Jeff Stein, who first reported on the CBO finding. According to the CBO, such exemptions would give large institutions, including so-called too-big-to-fail banks, more freedom to engage in the kind of risky behavior that led to the 2008 financial crash, thus making them more likely to collapse again. So, these are banks that are worth between 50 and 250 billion. They should be broken up. There should be no such thing as too-big-to-fail financial institutions, but instead, 
what these legislators are doing is they're loosening restrictions, giving them even more power to gamble with our money, engage in risky behavior that will lead to another economic crash. That's not going to hurt those big banks. It's going to hurt the average American citizen because we're going to be the ones to have to bail them out. We'll be the ones who will be affected by the economic consequences of their despicable behavior. But yet, we have 17 Democrats, technically 16 Democrats, but Angus King usually caucuses with Democrats. He is an independent, um, a lot like Bernie Sanders, but he went along with this plan to uh, deregulate Wall Street. So 16 Democrats that voted to proceed, who are they? Well, these are the Democrats. We have Michael Bennett, Tom Carper, Chris Coons, Joe Donnelly, Maggie Hassan, Heidi Heitkamp, surprise, surprise, Doug Jones, Tim Kaine, Angus King, Joe Manchin, no surprise there, Claire McCaskill, Bill Nelson, Gary Peters, Gene Shaheen, Debbie Stabenow, John Tester, and Mark Warner. So, I mean, we have the usual suspects. We have Joe Manchin, Heidi Heitkamp, anything that screws over the middle class uh, that Republicans support. They're going to go along with it. But we have some people here. We have Doug Jones, just elected by African Americans in the state of Alabama. And what does he do? Screws them over almost immediately. It's been a couple of months, and this is what he does. Tim Kaine, Hillary Clinton's vice presidential pick, going along with this bill to deregulate Wall Street. And this comes after he recently publicly stated that he's skeptical about the benefits of single-payer healthcare. See, he's skeptical about something like single-payer, which would literally save lives, but when it comes to deregulating Wall Street, he's on board with it. He has no question about it. These are Democrats who we are supposed to be blindly loyal to no matter what. Every single one of these individuals that voted for something that should be a no-brainer, they've got to be voted out of Congress. They've got to be primaried. There's no excuse for what they did. This is so brazen. It's so disgusting that this is irredeemable. They should retire. The worst part is that Democrats like John Tester, they literally had the audacity after voting to proceed with the bill that would deregulate Wall Street to pat themselves on the back saying, oh, this is so great that we finally reached a consensus. And I hope that other lawmakers will see that bipartisanship will make Congress a little bit more stable. Well, here's the thing. I don't give a fuck how stable Congress is if it means that there's going to be bipartisanship that screws over Americans. Bipartisanship in and of itself isn't inherently good. It's only beneficial if that bipartisanship is a conduit to pass legislation that benefits normal Americans. But this is not what's happening. Anytime there's a bipartisan bill in Congress then we have to be skeptical that it is screwing over Americans because that usually means that corporatists from both parties are teaming up to fuck us over even more than they already have been doing. So this made me irate when I heard about this. Voting to proceed on a measure that deregulates Wall Street. I mean, we know exactly who to blame when there's the next economic crash. Now look, to point the finger at Democrats and lambast Democrats in particular, when Republicans also went along with this, that's not suggesting that Republicans are better than Democrats. It's just that we're constantly beat over the head by the establishment about how we need to vote for Democrats no matter what. 
So if we're supposed to vote for Democrats, then shouldn't we theoretically expect more from them than from Republicans? Shouldn't we hold them to a higher standard than Republicans? Yeah, I think we should, because they claim to be the good guys. They claim to have the moral high ground, and here they are going along with Republicans, a corporate fascist party to deregulate Wall Street and basically facilitate another economic crash. Shame on all these sellouts. Now, progressives in the Senate were not happy about this, so Bernie Sanders actually tweeted to denounce this bill, saying, Are our memories so short that we have learned nothing from the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression just 10 years ago? Unbelievably, Congress now wants to deregulate some of the same banks that helped cause the 2008 financial disaster. At a time of massive concentration of ownership in the financial sector, now is not the time to deregulate banks that have more than $3.5 trillion in assets and lay the groundwork for another massive financial collapse. And now, another progressive, Elizabeth Warren, also decided to call out her own party. And this is surprising to me because we know that Elizabeth Warren is someone who she... She talks a lot, right? But she never, ever calls out her own party no matter what. So they can fuck us over, they can rig primaries, and she won't She won't admit that that's what they're doing. Or if she does admit that they rigged the primary like she did last year, she'll reverse her stance like a day later. But she even decided to call out Democrats because this was so despicable, saying Senate Republicans voted unanimously for the Bank Lobbyist Act, but this bill wouldn't be on the path to becoming law without the support of these Democrats. The Senate just voted to increase the chances your money will be used to bail out big banks again. And she's saying that your money will be used to bail out big banks because when they inevitably crash the economy, it's going to be your money that's used to bail them out because they're too big to fail. Yeah, that's why we need to break them the fuck up. Too big to fail should not be a thing. So I'm glad that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren spoke out, but let me ask you this, Liz. Are you still willing to make a, quote, spirited defense of Joe Manchin? Because when she was on TYT, Jen Uger asked her about Joe Manchin, and she decided to come to his defense. Are you still willing to defend him after doing something so egregious and disgusting? Every single... I'm going to go through their names again. Every single one of these Democrats, they should not be in office. Michael Bennett, Tom Carper, Chris Coons, Joe Donnelly... Maggie Hassan, Heidi Heitkamp, Doug Jones, Tim Kaine, Angus King, Joe Manchin, Claire McCaskill, Bill Nelson, Gary Peters, Gene Shaheen, Debbie Stabenow, John Tester, Mark Warner. Despicable. Every single one of these people should lose their jobs. They should not be in Congress. They should not be in the Senate specifically. They need to be primary. They need to go. And thankfully, some of these individuals are, in fact, being primary. You can get Joe Manchin, just basically a Republican at this point. I don't know why we refer to him as a Democrat. He's basically a Republican. You can kick his house out of office if you live in West Virginia by voting for Paula Jean Swearingen and supporting her campaign. So they all have to lose. This is unacceptable. There's absolutely no reason why they should be voting to deregulate Wall Street, especially when they know what consequences will inevitably come to fruition as a result of this behavior. But we all know exactly why they're doing it. They don't care about the American people. They don't care about the consequences of another economic crash. They're doing it because they're sellouts and they take money from Wall Street. It's as plain and simple as that. So there's an individual named Dan Lipinski who is seeking re-election for the eighth time in Illinois' third congressional district, and this person is a Democrat, but you wouldn't necessarily think he's a Democrat based on his voting record. Now, when House Minority Speaker Nancy Pelosi was asked about whether or not she supports his bid to be re-elected for the eighth time after he proved to be more of a Republican than a Democrat, 
Well, according to reporter Al Weaver, she states that she, in fact, supports his bid to be re-elected. Now, specifically, why is that a problem? Because Nancy Pelosi supports conservative Democrats all the time. Well, this headline pretty much says everything we need to know about Dan Lipinski. Nancy Pelosi just endorsed the congressman who opposes abortion and gay rights. Dan Lipinski even voted against Obamacare. <laughs> so, here's the thing about Democrats. They suck because when it comes to economic policy, they're conservative. So the one good thing about Democrats is that they're at least socially liberal. They're pro-gay Republicans, as Jimmy Dore puts it. But to remove that positive aspect away from a Democrat, to have a Democrat that's both socially conservative and economically conservative, you no longer have a Democrat. You have a Republican. And he voted against Obamacare. I mean, Obamacare was not great, but it was at least better than what we had at the time. He voted against that as well. So, I mean, everything we need to know about Dan Lipinski is summed up in that short article, you'd think, but it actually gets a lot worse than what that headline tells us, because Tim Murphy of Mother Jones explains, Illinois Democratic Representative Dan Lipinski's career is on life support. The seven-term congressman from the Chicago area, who inherited his seat from his father, is facing a formidable primary challenge from businesswoman Marie Newman, whose campaign has been fueled by progressive anger at Lipinski's opposition to reproductive rights, LGBT rights, and Obamacare. Emily's List, the national organization that supports pro-choice women candidates, has backed Newman, and along with a host of progressive groups, including Planned Parenthood and the pro-LGBT rights human rights campaign, has spent heavily on ads against Lipinski. And these are the types of ads that they are running against Lipinski. They tell us a little bit more about him. He opposes abortion, even in cases of rape and incest, and pushed to defund Planned Parenthood. But it's not Trump. It's your Congressman Dan Lipinski. In Congress, Lipinski has supported 52 bills to restrict a woman's right to choose and to block low-income women from accessing birth control and other health care services. You can't fight Trump when you agree with him. It's time for Dan Lipinski to go. Citizens for a Better Illinois is responsible for the content of this advertising. That's a Democrat. Why? I have absolutely no idea. I think it's strategy. He clearly is aligned more with Republicans, but he probably thinks that that district is blue and wouldn't vote for him if he was a Republican. So he just decided to act like a Republican and um, stay as a Democrat. Well, look, if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. So Dan Lipinski is a Republican. And when you've got establishment organizations like Emily's List, Planned Parenthood, the human rights campaign, all coming out against him, and even the DCCC, maybe perhaps the only organization more corrupt than the DNC, or at least as corrupt as the DNC, they came out against him as well. Still, Nancy Pelosi endorsed him. That sounds kind of... Dum, 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 dum. And it gets even more pathetic. This is an individual that voted against... Nancy Pelosi's bid to be leader, not once, not twice, count them, four different times. <laughs> so he has personally done things that affect Nancy Pelosi negatively, and she still endorsed him. What's wrong with you, Nancy? And see, this is why 
I think it's hilarious when neoliberal centrists and mainly, you know, uh, mainstream media pundits like Joanne Reed call us sexist for calling for the ouster of Nancy Pelosi. It's things like this, endorsing a Republican over a true progressive like Mary Newman. Again, if Dan Lipinski isn't even socially liberal, what good is he to the party? He votes against things that Nancy Pelosi pushes for, even the most moderate liberal reforms he's against, like Obamacare. But she still endorsed him when he is not an asset to the party. I don't get why she's loyal to him. I think there's something going on behind the scenes that we don't know about. Now, I don't want to speculate. I don't want to drum up conspiracy theories, but I really, I mean, this makes no sense to me. This is absolutely absurd. For her to endorse someone who is even against her being a leader in the party makes no sense to me. It's not just the policies. There's something else going on here. So she basically endorsed a Republican. So I'm trying to think if maybe they have an agreement of some sort. I don't know what the hell it is. But this is really strange. I don't know what Nancy's doing. Half the time I don't know what she's doing, but this time I really am confused by her behavior here. Nancy, the only one holding progressives back and the country back more than Dan Lipinski is you because you continue to provide cover to these conservative blue dog Democrats that are hurting your party. They're demoralizing the base. Who's going to want to come out and vote for Dan Lipinski? You're basically giving that seat to a Republican. And yes, I get it. He won multiple times. But times have changed in this country. People are paying attention to what's happening in American politics. And they see that this so-called Democrat is in Congress screwing them over. They thought that they voted for a Democrat and could just sit back and relax. But they're getting a Republican effectively. So people are paying attention. We are making note of every little thing that you do, Nancy. And this is not acceptable. So... I really hope that Stephen Jaffe, Nancy Pelosi's primary opponent, can defeat her. You can support his campaign and basically send a message to Nancy Pelosi that we've moved on. Progressives have moved on and she is someone who should retire. She's not helping anyone. She's holding us back. Nancy, you've got to quit. You can't keep doing this. You have to retire. So, for those of you that remember Ruben Kiwin, I have an update about this particular congressman. So, originally, Amy Valela is an activist who lost her child because she couldn't prove that she had health insurance. So, she died. So, Amy became an activist to make sure that no other American citizen would have to go through what she went through with her daughter. And she attended a town hall with Ruben Kiwin and asked him to co-sponsor Medicare for All. Long story short, he said no. She decided to run against him and primary him. So there's this Democratic primary going on for a while between Amy Valela and Ruben Kewen. And all of a sudden, Amy Valela becomes the presumptive nominee in that particular district, the 4th Congressional District of Nevada, because we see these allegations about Ruben Kewen that he sexually harassed staffers who were a part of his campaign. So what does he do? He decides to ignore calls for him to resign uh, from people like even Nancy Pelosi, and he decided that he's just not going to run for re-election come 2018. He's not going to challenge Amy Valela, so there was other corporatists like Pat Spearman and Stephen Horsford who decided to join in the race. But we can't necessarily close the book on Ruben Kewen just yet, because over the last couple of weeks, there's been some inklings about Ruben Kiwen not exiting politics just yet. So as you can see by this headline here, 
Kiwin dogged by sex harassment allegations, considering running again despite previously announcing retirement. So he decided to not seek re-election, knowing his career is over. And now he's saying, you know what? Even though I'm a serial sexual harasser and multiple women have come forward, I might still run. Fuck it. Are you kidding me, Ruben? So John Ralston of the Nevada Independent reports Representative Ruben Kiwin, who announced last year that he was retiring after multiple allegations of sexual harassment, is considering filing for re-election, multiple sources have confirmed. Kiwin has contacted donors, the Culinary Union, and even former Senator Harry Reid about the possibility of running again, saying he has received encouragement to do so. He has until a week from Friday to file. Neither Kiwin nor his spokesman would reply to inquiries from the Nevada Independent this week, but sources confirm that frontrunner Stephen Horsford, he's not the frontrunner, by the way, but anyways... Sources confirmed that frontrunner Stephen Horsford, the former congressman who announced he would run for his old seat after Kiwin said he would not, and other Democrats are furious about Kiwin's possible filing. Kiwin has been accused by at least three women of sexual misconduct, and some Democratic leaders in the House have called on him to resign. He announced in December that he would not run again. The House Ethics Committee is investigating the allegations. Okay, first and foremost, let's get that little thing out of the way about Stephen Horsford being the frontrunner. This article did not link to a poll indicating that Stephen Horsford is the frontrunner. Amy Valela is the true frontrunner. Not only does she have national support, she's going to be the one to face off against the Republican. They even mentioned Pat Smearman in, in this article, but they didn't mention Amy Valela. Unbelievable. So Amy Valela is the one that's been campaigning relentlessly. So to not even mention her is insulting. But getting to the actual substance of the story... The fact that he's considering a run again is absurd, and it goes to show you just how selfish Ruben Kiwin is, because if an alleged serial sexual harasser were to run, well, chances are he'd lose. Voters would reject him, but he cares more about himself than the people in that particular district, and he's willing to risk losing to a Republican because he's worried about his own career rather than letting someone like Amy Valela win and keep that seat blue. So, I mean, this tells us more than we need to know about Ruben Kiwin. We already know that he was garbage as a congressman, but he's also garbage as a human being as well because he's shameless. Wouldn't you want to hide your face after multiple women come forward with credible allegations that you sexually harass them? Wouldn't you be embarrassed? Apparently not. Apparently he is so worried about his own career that he doesn't care how bad it looks, how opportunistic he looks as a politician. And the reason why he feels empowered to still run and represent that district is because he really is Harry Reid's golden boy. So if Harry Reid has given him even the slightest indication that it's okay for him to still run, then Harry Reid is pretty much a god in the state of Nevada. He is the establishment in Nevada. Then Reuben Kewin's like, oh, okay, well, I got the backing of Jesus himself, Harry Reid, so I might as well run. I don't know what to say about this. By the time you see this video, chances are you'll already know if he decided to run or not. But the fact that he even is considering it, it's a scandal. It's a national scandal. This is disgusting. I mean, what more can I say about this? The, the headline speaks for itself. But he's con literally considering running again. What is wrong with you, Ruben? And it's not like he was a phenomenal congressman. Like, I mean, John Conyers, who was progressive on the policy substance, he co-sponsored H.R. 676, the Medicare for All bill, year after year after year. I mean... 
Even he retired and resigned, and that was a good decision. But Ruben Kiwen wasn't even a good congressman. He wasn't even doing a good job politically. When you separate who he is from the policies, the policies are still garbage. He's a corporatist. He's not a progressive. He's actually part of the Progressive Caucus in Congress, or he was anyways. I don't know if he still is. And he was against Medicare for All. He's against progressive policies. What a despicable, opportunistic asshole this guy is. The fact that he's considering this is disgusting. Go away, Ruben. None of us ever want to see or hear about you ever again. Fuck off. While the mainstream media fixates on this Stormy Daniels scandal and gives it endless coverage and other stupid stories about Donald Trump that just aren't necessarily important and impact our lives... There's a real scandal going on in the White House that we're not hearing much about. And this scandal is multiple policies that Donald Trump's administration is pushing that I don't think it's hyperbolic to say is slowly killing us. And the way he's killing Americans, it's being done in a multitude of ways across various policy changes. So according to Vox, the Trump administration is quietly dismantling the Affordable Care Act, taking a series of regulatory steps that will make it easier for insurance companies to sell plans that exclude patients with pre-existing conditions or don't cover basic services like maternity care, mental health treatment, and prescription drugs. So how specifically... Is he doing this? Well, the Health and Human Services Department published new rules recently that widen access to short-term healthcare plans that are cheap and are intended for people that don't have access to full coverage and are in between jobs, for example. Now, at face value, these plans might seem like a great deal because they're cheap. They're like less than 100 bucks a month in most cases. The problem is that since these are traditionally meant to be temporary healthcare plans, the regulations that were passed under the Affordable Care Act don't fully apply to these plans in particular. Quote, plans can deny people insurance based on their medical history, charge them higher premiums because of their pre-existing medical conditions, and craft skimpy benefits packages that will appeal mostly to young and healthy people. Now, again, the reason why these plans in particular are exempt from Obamacare regulations is because they're temporary. In most cases, you have them for a couple of months and then you move on to a more permanent health plan. But what Donald Trump is doing is he's trying to make it so that way these plans become more widely available and they last longer when that's not what these were intended to do. So people who are well might think that this is a great idea and they'll buy it and think that they have health insurance, but the minute they get sick, they're going to realize that they're getting ripped off because this isn't meant to be a long-term plan. And people who are sick, they're not going to be able to get on these plans. Because these plans are able to deny people health care coverage if they have pre-existing conditions. Now, under Obama, people could only keep these types of plans for 90 days. But Trump is not only trying to make them more widely available to consumers, but he's actually extending the duration that individuals are able to keep these plans to a year and even considering extending them more than that. But that's unacceptable. This is not health care. These were... Shitty temporary measures for people in between jobs that couldn't get access to a new healthcare plan. But Trump is trying to make this the new norm. So what's going to happen is that these insurance companies are going to make billions of dollars in profits selling lots of these plans because a lot of people will feel inclined to buy them because they'll think that they're covered. But in actuality, this will facilitate sick people dying because they can't get coverage because they're going to be denied it based on pre-existing conditions and people who do buy these plans 
I mean, you might be able to see your doctor with it, but if you need any substantial medical procedure or surgery, anything like that, it's not going to be covered under these plans. Again, these are temporary plans. They're not meant to be permanent, but Donald Trump is trying to move towards a system wherein these plans are, in fact, more common and more permanent. But that's not the only thing that Donald Trump is doing that is harmful to American citizens. As the AP reports, the Trump administration said Thursday it is rewriting Obama-era rules governing pollution from oil and gas operations and coal ash dumps, moves that opponents say will significantly weaken protections for human health and the environment. The changes proposed by the Environmental Protection Agency are the latest in a series of actions taken over the last year to roll back regulations opposed by the fossil fuel industry. The agency said the revisions would save electric utilities $100 million per year in compliance costs, while oil and gas operators would reap up to $16 million in benefits by 2035. So, in other words, water will be dirtier, the air will be polluted even more, and if these policy changes make you sick, good luck getting health insurance because congratulations, now this sickness caused by deregulation, that's the pre-existing condition. Health insurance companies aren't going to want to give you insurance if they think you're sick and will cost them money. So he's not only changing conditions in the country with regard to regulation of the environment and water to basically facilitate more sickness in this country, but he's making it more difficult for you to get actual real substantive coverage in the event you are sick. But that's still not all, because Vice President Mike Pence recently declared that legal abortions in the United States will end, quote, in our time. And look, I don't know the extent to which they're going to be successful at achieving this goal. I think it's going to be a huge task ahead of them if they really want to ban abortions. But they are restricting access to abortion. That's what Trump's administration is doing. And it's not just Trump. Republicans are doing this at the state level as well. Now, what happens if we ban abortion in the United States? Well, that will not change the amount of abortions that are actually occurring. It'll just increase the amount of illegal, unsafe abortions that are occurring. Abortions that are unsafe because they're not being regulated by the federal government. And according to a recent study published, 69,000 women around the world die every single year due to unsafe abortions. And of those that survive these unsafe, illegal abortions... Millions end up living with long-term health complications as a result. So banning abortion hurts women. And if you ban abortion in the United States, obviously that's going to hurt women. So these are things that Donald Trump's administration is doing, or at least trying to do. They are making healthcare more difficult to achieve and making shittier healthcare options more widely available simultaneously as they uh, deregulate the oil and gas industry, allow coal companies to pollute uh, water. These are all policies that will slowly kill American citizens. It might not be quick, but he's making people sicker. He's making access to healthcare more difficult to come by. When I say healthcare, I mean real healthcare. If you have one of these $90 plans, that's not real healthcare. Because if you have a medical emergency, it's not going to be covered. So you don't have healthcare. You might feel like you have healthcare. You might feel protected. But in actuality, you're not protected. So these are the things that Donald Trump is doing that are the real scandals, in my opinion. Not this Stormy Daniels bullshit. Yes, that speaks to Donald Trump's character. He claims to be an evangelical all of a sudden. But we all know he's a hypocrite. But these are the real things. The policies Donald Trump is doing that couldn't be more harmful to the American citizens. And it's not just like he's only hurting Americans. I mean, he's waging an illegal drone war 
that he ramped up by 400% in numerous countries, eight countries now, including Niger. Trump is absolutely a menace. So it is now officially crunch time for net neutrality activists because within less than 60 days, the FCC's repeal order will in fact take effect. So if you care about this issue, now is the time to make some calls to your state representative, to your state senator, to your governor, and tell him or her to protect net neutrality in any way that they can. So we have to put in time, we have to put in the work to make sure that Net neutrality is protected if this order does in fact take effect, which it probably will at this point, unless Congress is able to pass the Congressional Review Act resolution that nullifies the repeal, then it's going to go into effect. Now, we don't necessarily know if we'll have the votes needed to pass this in Congress, but in the meanwhile, we can't bank on that. We have to act quickly. Now, thankfully, There are lawmakers across the country that are coming together to save net neutrality. And the state of Washington recently had a huge victory because they passed the toughest net neutrality legislation in the country. As Fast Company reports, Washington state has passed sweeping legislation to regulate internet access for its residents. The bill cleared the state Senate on a 35 to 14 vote with bipartisan support. It had already blown through the House of Representatives by 93 to 5 on February 9th, and Governor Jay Inslee is on record as ready to sign it. It's swift bipartisan action to protect net neutrality, which is terrific. The bill's main sponsor, Democratic Representative Drew Hansen, tells Fast Company, Washington's law applies to all internet service providers that serve residents, whether or not they have state deals. All internet service offered in Washington would have to be free from blocking or throttling of legal online content, nor could it be subject to a system of premium-priced fast lanes that offer better bandwidth to content providers that pay extra for the privilege. Just because the FCC claims it has the power to preempt state laws doesn't mean that it actually does, says Hansen. I can claim that I have the power to manifest unicorns on the Washington State Capitol lawn, but if you look outside right now, there are no unicorns. So that sends a very strong message to Ajit Pai. You told us that we're not allowed to regulate the internet in our states, and this is our message to you. We're going to do it anyway. So I absolutely love not only that they passed this, but that they're taking such a strong stand for net neutrality. And hopefully this law will catch on and we'll see other states pass this type of legislation. Now understand what they're doing here. They're regulating internet service providers both directly and indirectly. So as you all know, the FCC did in fact try to preempt states to block them from passing their own net neutrality laws. That's what Drew Hansen was talking about here. But states are trying to get around that by basically passing laws that don't directly regulate internet service providers, but they just say, well, we're not going to sign a contract with any internet service provider that chooses to violate the principles of net neutrality. But Washington is saying, well, we're going to regulate it directly and indirectly. We don't care what Ajit Pai says. And this is fantastic because they're creating a model that I hope catches on, as I stated earlier, but it seems as though Washington is beginning to rub off, at least on its neighbors, because Oregon also made some progress with their net neutrality law. So the Oregon House of Representatives actually passed a law protecting net neutrality in a 40 to 17 vote. 
and as the Seattle Times reports, if enacted, the measure wouldn't mandate internet service providers take any action but would stop state agencies from buying internet service from any company that blocks or prioritizes specific content or apps starting in 2019. The prohibition would include cities and counties but includes an exemption for areas with only a single provider. So this law in Oregon is definitely a step in the right direction, and I hope it passes. I think that if we are in Oregon, we have to make calls to make sure that it does go through. But this is not anywhere as near as strong as Washington's law is, and that exemption in a way is problematic. Now, look, understand, I get the logic behind that exemption, because if there's one county and one internet service provider in that county, if that internet service provider wants to violate net neutrality, then by regulating the internet indirectly, they're saying, well, you know what, we're not going to buy internet through you or contract with you because you're violating net neutrality. And if the state did that, then guess what would happen? Everyone in that county would be left out. Now, in actuality, I think that this reasoning is flawed. Because these greedy companies aren't going to deny themselves the chance to make more money just because of this net neutrality law. So if push comes to shove and there's one county with one internet service provider, do you think that that internet service provider is not going to offer internet? just because they want to violate net neutrality? Absolutely not. So I wish that the state would have been stronger here and said, you know what, we're just not going to buy internet from you whatsoever. And if that means that this county is going to be left with no internet, then so be it. Now, of course, in actuality, I don't support that. There will be internet. I'm just saying that they're not understanding just how greedy these companies are. And even if they abide by net neutrality, if that means making them money in one county where they're the only provider, they're going to do it. So this really is weak net neutrality legislation, and I would like that exemption excluded from this bill. But nonetheless, this is a step in the right direction. So as you can see, state lawmakers are doing a lot. We have governors doing a lot. And now, thankfully, mayors are now stepping up from across the country in major cities to speak out and call on Congress to pass the Congressional Review Act resolution to nullify the FCC's repeal of net neutrality. As Chloe Kim of State Scoop reports, in an attempt to save Obama-era net neutrality rules, more than 75 U.S. mayors and elected officials have signed a letter supporting a Congressional Review of the FCC's recent net neutrality rollback. The letter represents yet another gesture by big city mayors, including those in Boston, Chicago, Houston, Los Angeles, Pittsburgh, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C., to support net neutrality standards that require internet service providers to provide uniform access to online content and prohibit them from favoring or blocking particular products or websites. Now, again, this letter comes at a really important time because unless Congress acts, well, in less than 60 days, Net neutrality will officially be repealed, and that leaves internet users completely vulnerable with no protections from the federal government whatsoever. And I don't necessarily know that these ISPs would quickly just brazenly violate net neutrality, but make no mistake about it. Once this repeal takes effect, they're going to be doing things that screw us over in order to enhance their profits. Now, it's not just lawmakers who are fighting to save net neutrality. It's also tech companies, because as Julia Horowitz of CNN Tech reports, several tech companies, including Etsy, Kickstarter, Foursquare, and Shutterstock, filed a petition on Monday afternoon challenging the Federal Communications Commission's rollback of net neutrality protections. Many states are also taking the FCC to court over the issue. In other words, what are 
tech companies doing to protect net neutrality if they support it since they can't pass laws? They're suing the FCC. So not only is the FCC being sued by multiple states, by uh, multiple attorneys general, um, and states by proxy of attorneys general, but they're now being sued by tech companies. So even if net neutrality goes away, if this repeal does take effect within two months, then understand that the battle is not over. But that doesn't mean that we become complacent. We still have to fight and do everything that we can to get our own states to pass laws that protect net neutrality, because unless we fight for it, net neutrality will go away. And I think that the constant pressure that you've exerted on lawmakers is responsible for all of these laws that we're seeing across the country. So look, we're in crunch time now. We've got to act. So please, Take the time, five minutes out of your day, to call your state representative. Also call whoever is representing you in Congress and get them on board with this Congressional Review Act. Because if we can pass the Congressional Review Act, that's just a quick and easy way to nullify the FCC's repeal of net neutrality. But if we can't do that, then we have to... We have to fight at the state level, and that's going to be really tough. So the easiest way, the biggest solution is to nullify the FCC's repeal order, but we can't bank on that just in case that doesn't pass. And keep in mind that there's another bill that lawmakers like Marshall Blackburn are pushing that doesn't actually repeal or save net neutrality. They're saying it saves net neutrality, but it doesn't. So there's that that we also have to look out for. So when you call your lawmaker, tell him or her to support the resolution in Congress, particularly in the Senate currently, to nullify the FCC's vote to repeal net neutrality. We've got to act quickly. So while I was gone, there was a story that came out that you'd really only expect to find published by a satirical website like The Onion, but this was real life. So apparently, Ajit Pai, FCC chairman, maybe you heard of him, he received an award for displaying courage while fucking over the American people during his bid to repeal net neutrality. I'm not kidding. So according to Kaylee Rogers of Vice, Ajit Pai, the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, was surprised Friday when instead of delivering prepared remarks as he had planned at the Conservative Political Action Conference, he was given an award from the National Rifle Association. The Charlton Heston Courage Under Fire Award is not given every year, explained Carolyn Meadows, the second vice president of the NRA. It's only presented when a person has stood up under pressure with grace and dignity and principal discipline. Can we just pause right there? This is grace and dignity that Ajit Pai displayed. You are so dumb. You are really dumb. For real. Okay, getting back to the article, citing the death threats Ajit Pai reportedly received as part of the backlash to his decision to overturn net neutrality protections, Dan Schneider, the executive director of the American Conservative Union, called Pai the most courageous, heroic person that I know. It was because he rammed through the net neutrality repeal despite the fact that it was categorically rejected by the American public, that the NRA gifted Pai with the title and the award, which is literally a a gun. 
a, a Kentucky handmade long gun to be precise. We cannot bring the award on stage, but being from the NRA, your gift will be housed in our museum with a plaque to you, Meadows said. When you can receive it, we'll give it to you. You'll love it. Now, the reason why the NRA could not bring his trophy slash gun um, on stage was because CPAC does not allow guns. Literally, guns are banned from a conservative event. (laughs) (laughs) Now, interestingly enough, the story got even weirder because Ajit Pai decided to reject this award, citing potential ethics concerns. Yeah. So in a letter to the NRA, he wrote, As you know, once my staff became aware of what was happening, they asked backstage that the musket not be presented to me to ensure that this could be first discussed with and vetted by career ethics attorneys in the FCC's Office of General Counsel, Pai wrote, according to an FCC source who relayed the text of the letters. Therefore, upon their counsel, I must respectfully decline the award, he wrote. I have also been advised by the FCC's career ethics attorneys that I would not be able to accept the award upon my departure from government service. So, according to this letter, Ajit Pai suddenly really is concerned about ethics, colluding with a Verizon executive to joke about how he's a puppet for Verizon, basically doing the bidding of Sinclair, changing policies so that way they can benefit. That's, that. you know, there's no ethical concerns to be had there, but when it comes to accepting an award from the NRA, Ajit Pai thinks, whoa, we got to think about the ethics here for a minute. This guy, <laughs> Ajit Pai is the one public official that I think never ceases to amaze me. This is interesting. So first and foremost, we have to go back to the award itself. The NRA thought, well, this individual here, he's fucking over the American people. He's doing something that they don't like because it obviously screws them over. So let's give him an award because he's courageous and fucking us over. He stood up to us and said, fuck you, as we demanded that he listen to us and do what we want. That's what they gave him an award for. Now they cite the alleged death threats he received, but first and foremost, look, I can't speak to that. All I can say is that I unequivocally do not condone death threats. I don't condone violence or harassment or intimidation of any kind. But what we do know is that Ajit Pai was basically trying to elevate signs that were left in front of his house saying basically that what he was doing was wrong and it was evil. He was trying to elevate that and equate it to basically harassment and intimidation and threats. I mean, I'm sure that there's some other things that he wasn't able to talk about that police were dealing with in terms of death threats, but that still doesn't change the fact that what he did was incredibly wrong. It was harmful. And yes, I do think it took a tremendous amount of courage to do what he did to basically stand up to the overwhelming majority of the American people and give them the middle finger. I think that that's wrong, but sure, it's courageous, but not in a good way. People do bad things, and it takes courage to do those bad things all the time. That doesn't mean that we should reward them for it. So this is probably the weirdest story I've come across And it's one of the other stories I couldn't wait to talk about after I got back, um, because what the hell? (laughs) I don't don't have much to say. Usually, you know, I have a lot of commentary for things 
um, for stories regarding Ajit Pai, but I've got nothing here. This is just, this is strange. The NRA, I think, they're going against the American people too, so I think that they could probably empathize with Ajit Pai because they also are doing things that are very unpopular. So at the end of the day, there's so much odd things in this story. The fact that he got the award, the fact that he not only rejected the award, but cited ethical reasons to reject the award. This is strange. Strange times we're living in. Uh, It's like the Twilight Zone, but it's real life. Well, that's all I got for you guys. As usual, I want to send a thank you to all of our Patreon patrons and PayPal contributors. Thank you so much for helping us. Um, You help the show exist. You are helping us to thrive and expand and also thank you to all of the GoFundMe people who backed the new studio. Again, I'm so sorry that we're not in a traditional studio. I know that the audio is probably off because there's an echo in this room because I haven't been able to, you know, um, get the reverb out and put up things on the wall like the acoustic foam. So I'm sorry. I know I'm rambling as well. Um, It's all exhausting putting together a studio, but at the same time, it's incredibly exciting and I just cannot wait for you all to see the studio. I hope it's next week. I can't make any guarantees at this point because we have so much more to do. But look, I always enjoyed talking about politics and that two-week break that I took, or I guess it was technically one week, it sucks. (laughs) So even though there were still videos being produced on the channel, there were other issues that came out that I had to talk about. So even though I couldn't get to everything, this is therapy for me. Uh, And I hope you guys feel the same way. So um, I'll see you all next week. Hopefully it'll be in the new studio. Can't make any promises, but certainly we're going to be here nonetheless. Take care.